If you would now take a copy of God's Word and turn to the New Testament letter to the Ephesians, and we will be looking at a prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. It could be summarized, the message of the entire book of Ephesians is the grace of God, His favorable disposition towards undeserving sinners. In it, we see His grace for salvation, His grace for serving Him, the way that His grace works in our life for sanctification. And the beginning of the chapter in verse 3 begins with Paul praising God for all the spiritual blessings that belong to believers because God has shown them grace. And then he closes the chapter almost paralleling those ideas in prayer form, showing us how he prays for the believers. It is a way that Paul prayed on a daily basis, we're given the impression, for the churches and for fellow Christians. And it serves as a model for how we are to pray for one another and also how to pray under the sovereign grace of God. Before we read God's word, let us ask for his help in prayer. Would you join me in praying? Our Heavenly Father, your word is true. And so in this moment, help us to tune out what we brought into this Lord's Day morning. The happenings of last night and the previous weeks and months. And we look to you and we say, speak, O Lord, through your word. So I ask that you would be pleased to bless the proclamation of your word this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. May it be for our edification and for the glory of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 through verse 23. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, at the, his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. The 1560 version of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion opens with a line that is quite profound. It opens with a line that is a shorter version of the later versions of the Institutes that many of us are familiar with, but in the 1560 version, the French could be translated this way. In knowing God, each of us also knows himself. There, Calvin connects the knowing of our creator as being essential to know who we are as created beings. There's no true self-knowledge without knowledge of God. If you don't know God, you can't truly know yourself. The problem is that in most of Western civilization, theology has been severed from anthropology. You don't need to know God to know your identity or your purpose. You can discover or choose for yourself 
your true self. And you can determine what to do with your life and what should be or shouldn't be important. But let's be honest. If you remove God from the equation, what are you truly left with? Meaningless origins and meaningless destiny. And you are left with meaningless desires. Contemplating this, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre came to the conclusion, and I quote, man is a useless passion. We're filled with all these passions, but to no end. Man is a useless passion. Praise be to God that in his kindness, he has not left the world without revelation of who he is and who he has created us to be. What the world needs now more than ever is anthropology interpreted in the light of the special revelation of Holy Scripture. And here at the close of Ephesians chapter 1, we have a prayer along these lines that we would grow in knowing our God and in doing so, we would know our new selves as those who have been transformed and saved by this great God of grace. It is a model of our prayer, but Paul inserts it here towards the beginning of his letter. In doing so, to tell the believers, I'm praying this for you because this is the sort of God you've been saved to, and this is what he has in store for you as being united to Christ, saved by God's grace. The passage can be divided in several ways. I divided it in three sections. Uh, Looking at verses 15 to 16, we see Paul's thanksgiving as he opens the prayer. Those who have tasted God's grace celebrate God's grace in the lives of others. That's the first thing I wanted to see in verses 15 and 16. And then the second section, verses 17 through 19, we see that prayer is vital to growing in the knowledge of God and his grace, verses 17 to 19. And then finally, our section closes with 19 to 23. And there we see recipients of God's grace are recipients of God's power. That may be the best way that I can outline the the passage for us. It's 169 words in the original Greek text, and it just goes and flows, and so we'll do our best to read it and study it for our benefit in verses 15 to 16. Those who have tasted God's grace celebrate God's grace in the lives of others. Paul has sent this letter from a prison in Rome sometime between 60 and 62 AD, and in it, we learn two things about Paul's prayers life. Did you notice that? It's a prayer life that is marked by constancy, and it is filled with thanksgiving. And so as he is sending this letter to the believers at Ephesus and then to be circulated to the churches around Asia Minor, we see how he prays for them. And we see that here a man in prison has a reason to give thanks But it's not because the Christians in Asia Minor or Ephesus have sent him anything. We don't know. Maybe they sent him an edible arrangement or some flowers, but uh, we're not told that they were. Here he's offering thanks for them for another reason. Particularly the church in Ephesus, Paul had a relationship to them as being the founder and establisher of that church. It was a decade earlier, sometime between 52 AD or so, he spent three years there establishing the church and ministering to those people. And so news of the churches there in that region and the church of Ephesus have come to Paul in prison. And with that news has come the news that the church is still there and that they're adding to their numbers. There are new converts. They are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are showing love for all the saints. This is what Paul gives thanks for. 
He has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. Verse 15. He's giving thanks that there have been marks of genuine conversion. How do you know that you have been transferred from light to darkness? How do you know that you are no longer following Satan, but you have become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, here are two marks, and the two clearest marks. One is that you have knowledge of the gospel, and that you have believed the good news that Jesus has died on the cross for sinners, and that he has risen from the dead, giving eternal life to his people, and you have trusted in Jesus to be your Savior. And then that has so transformed your life, having been saved by Christ and having your heart filled with the love of God, you love others, particularly first and foremost, your brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have also placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Not only has their relationship to God changed, but the transformation of their lives is evidenced. How? In their love for fellow Christians. Their love for fellow Christians. Here are good, true marks of genuine conversion. As Sinclair Ferguson has said, God's people look like God's gospel. And this testimony has made its way to Paul in prison. But notice to whom he addresses the thanks. As he gives thanks for the Ephesians, he is not thanking the Ephesians. He thanks God for the Ephesians. Why? Well, at the beginning of verse 15, it says, for this reason. For what reason? Well, it includes their faith in Jesus and their love for one another, but this is evidence that the extravagant, wonderful, grace of God that he has expounded in verses 3 through 14 has come and is still ministering and saving sinners there in that city and adding to the number of the church. And so it's for this reason, the reasons of verses 3 through 14, the blessings that belong to believers, the glorious truth of unconditional election, the glorious truth of their adoption and sonship into the family of God, their redemption from the slavery to sin by Christ's blood, and the gift of the Holy Spirit as their seal and promise of things to come. Paul is giving thanks because he has heard the testimony that God has intervened once again in the life of sinners, and that God, by sovereign grace, has plucked them from the kingdom of darkness and put him in his own kingdom. And Paul, I believe, probably thinks about his own conversion. As he hears the testimony of God's grace in others' lives, he thinks of his own experience of coming to personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And how he was so lost, blinded in his sin, how he was trying to oppose Christ and his church by any means possible. How at one point he stood by and approved holding the coats of those who were throwing stones at the first Christian martyr, Stephen, because of Stephen's faithful testimony to Jesus. How he went from that to being an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul's conversion began with him as a man of prayer, giving thanks, and it just never stopped. And so every testimony of salvation he hears, he's reminded of God's glorious grace in his own life. And he erupts in thanksgiving. And there's enough to be thankful for that he prays often and almost constantly. It's good. It's good to think about this. Because before we even get into the request of this prayer, here's a, a helpful way for you to kickstart your prayer life if it feels stalled out, if it feels dry, if there is no joy and delight 
and setting aside time to pray, a good way to renew your prayer life is to begin each time in thanksgiving. To begin giving thanks to God for his great grace and then recall how it's not just you that he's saved, that he has saved a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that he is saving men, women, boys, and girls across the globe right now. And that heaven is going to be a celebration of the lamb who died for sinners. And remind yourselves of the great, glorious gospel narrative of God's grace rescuing wretches like you and I and begin giving thanks to quick start, kickstart your prayer life. Christians, we can always give thanks for God's grace both in our lives and in the lives of others. But then moving on to verses 17 to 19, we see that prayer is vital to growing in the knowledge of God and his grace. Paul tells us the request beyond giving thanks for their conversion and the way that God's grace has saved them. Paul tells the request that he brings before God on behalf of the Ephesians. And the request could be summarized as that they would grow in knowing God and that they would grow in what is theirs by grace. That they would grow in the comprehension of what belongs to them by grace. There we see it in verse 17. Look back there with me again. First, there is the address. The address tells us something about the request. He addresses the prayer to that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and then he gives his request. We see in the prayer that it is a a Trinitarian prayer, but the prayer is clearly addressed to God the Father. And we are introduced to him in this section as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The address itself reminds us that any access to God the Father is through Jesus. But we may ask the question, why does he not just say the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why the God of our Lord Jesus Christ? What Paul is accenting here in this address is he is accenting Jesus' role as the mediator. As the God-man, he remained the eternal Son but he took on our humanity. And so his father was his God too. Wherein we have failed to serve and obey our God, Jesus did not. And now through him, we have access to his God. But then it is said he is the father of glory. Now some translations would translate the glorious father, but we don't want to miss what what they're trying to tell us. It's not merely a description modifying this, who the Father is, but it's of glory, that the glory belongs to the Father. The glory of God is his weightiness, his majesty, his splendor. Glory is used as a descriptor for who he is. He uses it of a descriptor of himself as his own self-disclosure. Glory is also used to describe the place of his dwelling. In Scripture, we see the glory of creation, the glory of his providence, and the glory of redemption. These are all from the Father, belong to him. But when we hear the word glory, we should be reminded of what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the glory that we were made for, but we fell short of. We were made to know God, and that was lost in our sin. Now, through grace, we are invited to know the Father of glory. And this address, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, it prepares us for the requests that are to come. Because the request is that we would know God and we know what his grace has done for us. The requests are interdependent. They are hinged. 
As Calvin said, in knowing God, each of us also knows himself. The first is a prayer to know God. The Ephesians, they, they need a lot of things. Chances are, in a city like Ephesus, to be a Christian meant that you made many sacrifices. And you were probably quickly pushed to the margins of the city. But of all the things that could be facing Christians as a minority in major metropolitan areas like Ephesus and across Asia Minor, what's their greatest need? Well, Paul begins with what Jesus identifies as the greatest need of every person. Every person who's fallen short of the glory of God, their need is eternal life. And in John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So how do we know God? Well, he tells us here, we meet the third person of the Trinity in this prayer. It's by the work of the Spirit. There, back in verse 17, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Here, it is alluding to what the prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah, that the Messiah would have God's spirit upon him. And in Isaiah 11, 2, it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Here, the Apostle Paul is saying the spirit that rested on the Messiah is now given to the Messiah's people. And this spirit is a spirit of wisdom. The Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. And many of the sections in, in Scripture that speak about wisdom, it's talking about a, a wisdom that is taking knowledge and rightly applying it to our lives. And some have thought this is what the Apostle Paul is praying, that the Ephesians would have wisdom to live their life, apply knowledge every day. That's not anti what he's saying here, but he's, he's saying more. He's saying more than just having insight on, on how to live wisely. He's saying it's the, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of the Messiah. He's not asking for that sort of just practical wisdom, though the practical wisdom can come from the wisdom he's asking for them. No, the Bible tells us of a different type of wisdom, of God's wisdom. Paul wrote it there earlier in the letter. Look back at verse 7 through 9 of chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This is first and foremost the wisdom that the apostle is praying that the Spirit would give to the church. Wisdom into the mystery of God as it's been revealed. It is the wisdom that he would write to the Corinthians. In Corinthians chapter 1, it says, it's the wisdom of the cross. The Greeks, they sought wisdom and they missed the cross. They saw it as folly, but it is God's wisdom to those who are being saved. And from this wisdom comes the practical wisdom to live the Christian life. But this is the highest and truest wisdom that guides and directs the lives of the believers. So he asked that the Spirit would inform and expound the believer's understanding of the cross of Christ and God's saving design in the history of redemption. But then it's a spirit of wisdom and revelation, a spirit of wisdom and never revelation. What Isaiah says in Isaiah 11 too, helps us understand what Paul is getting at by revelation here. Is he asking that God would give new revelation to the believers? No, he is asking that God would give them, as Isaiah said, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. He's not asking for revelation, it's the spirit of revelation. He's asking that the one who committed and communicated 
the revelation to the prophets and to Moses and to the apostles, that one that he would help the believers understand revelation. Now, they already have the Spirit. In verse 13, it says that they were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. And so it's important to recognize that those who have the Spirit are to ask for more of the Spirit so that we might better know the wisdom and revelation of God. And that is confirmed that the work of the Spirit in the believer's life is that he helps us perceive and understand and believe the gospel. He, he opens our eyes to see. And that is what the following phrase there in the next verse says, in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The Spirit is taking revealed truth and pressing it deeper and deeper into our hearts. The eyes of our hearts, that's a, that's a phrase, as far as we can tell, Paul is the first word, person in Greek to use this phrase, the eyes of the heart. And this most likely too goes back to Paul's own conversion experience of how he encountered the grace of God. Because as he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, do you remember what happened? That he went blind by the light. And it was a demonstration of Paul. This is your soul. This is your heart. It's in darkness. And he spent days in darkness until the scales were removed. And this was Paul's own conversion experience. And it's a, a living metaphor of what the Spirit does when sinners are saved, going from light to darkness. And it's not limited to our conversion. Because the word enlightened is in the perfect tense, meaning that it refers to a finished action. You've been born again, but it has an ongoing effect. It's in the perfect tense. We've been brought into the light. We've been given eyes to see, but we are growing in our perception of the light. It's similar to in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus heals the blind man. This is one of the more interesting healings in the gospel narratives because the first time it seems like it's a, like it's a, a pretty good healing because what happens? The guy says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. He saw, but he didn't see clearly. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And here we get a picture of the Christian life of growing in the light, growing in our perception as it's being buried into our hearts and minds. It reminds me of, and I'm not a big video game person, but the progress of video games in my lifetime. When I was a, a kid, one of my favorite games was Tecmo Super Bowl, um, a one-dimensional pixelated football game. And you always chose the Raiders because no one could tackle Bo Jackson. And so that was one of the games that I remember as a kid. But it was very simple, very plain. There was canned phrases and noises, and the fans did the same thing over and over. Just a couple weeks ago, I stumbled onto a more modern video game, uh, one of the latest versions of Madden, which is a football game, in which they were doing a simulation of a NFL regular season game. And as you watched it, you couldn't tell the difference between that and a replay of a game from last season. How the progress of the, the depths, the angles, what the, what the announcers were saying, the facial expressions on the players. And by the way, in that Madden simulation, the Saints beat the Seahawks, if you care about things like that. This is helpful to us to remember. It's helpful for us to be reminded of. Because sometimes we look around the church and we say, I just feel like I don't know anything compared to them. And we forget that the Spirit has been working in that dear brother or sister's life maybe for decades. And we've only been walking with the Lord for a couple weeks or years and so instead of being discouraged, we should say, 
Holy Spirit, you're doing the same thing in me. The same Holy Spirit that was the spirit of wisdom and understanding to Christ is the Holy Spirit who enlightened the eyes of my heart and is teaching me the truth and helping me to grow in it. We wouldn't get frustrated with teaching a child to read if after weeks of trying to teach them how to read, we realize they, they need glasses, that everything is blurry. No, we would be patient with them, so we should be patient with ourselves and patient with one another. And those who would have been many years in the church and have spent many years studying the scriptures, this is also instructive for, for you to remember that you've heard many sermons and listened to many conferences and read commentaries and systematic theologies and listened to podcasts. And so you understand this doctrine clearly and you can you can explain it backwards in front and you can show all the places in which the Reformed confessions explain this, this doctrine and you forget that you have spent years wrestling with this doctrine. And so you look at someone in your growth group and say, well, why don't you get it? It's right there. It just says it. He, he elects. He, he does it. And then you forget the journey that you, you went on. And so it helps us to know how to pray for one another. It also guides us in such a way that if we either have knowledge of God, we are to come to that knowledge, it's going to be in a distinctly Christian way. That we cannot mimic the, the spirituality of the world around us and then put Christian language on it and sanctify it. That God has ordained means of grace and that there is the necessity of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit for someone to grow in the knowledge of God. Then we come to the second request that he prays for his fellow believers. The second request is that they would know what grace has done for them. And he identifies three blessings there in the following verses. Looking in verse 18, the first blessing that he identifies is knowing what is the hope to which he has called you. The second blessing, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The third blessing, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He says, know God and know his grace towards you as far as hope, inheritance, and power. Hope is not just wishful thinking. It is the assurance of what is to come. He's pointing them to the goal of their salvation and says, yes, you are still waiting, but you wait with assurance that this is a reality that you will only know in greater and greater ways. In Ephesians, early in the chapter, verse 10, the hope is the plan that God has put in place that for at the fullness of time, he'll unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And for believers today, we don't see that, but that is our hope. Many of the neighbors in the ancient world would have suffered great anxiety about tomorrow and about fate. They didn't know their God and they didn't know the hope that belonged to Christians. But here he says, Christians, God has given you revelation in his word about the future and that should transform the way that you live now. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, we need to see the future clearly as revealed in scripture if we are to live in the present faithfully. And he has reminded them, this is God the Father's working in you. He has called you to this hope. It's the Father's initiative. And so seeing the Father's initiative to call you to himself and give you a hope, it changes the way that we as Christians approach our treasure, our time, and our talents. It changes and impacts our day-to-day. -day. This is for Monday morning, the hope of God's coming kingdom and the consummation of all things is the most important thing to begin with when you pour your cup of coffee and you face the new week. You could face the new week looking at the headlines from the weekend and seeing who was hurt, what was destroyed, seeing the aftermath of, of weather 
and crisis across the world, or you begin turning your eyes towards your God and reminding yourself of the hope that is to come. Then it says, it's not just the hope, it's an inheritance. It's an inheritance. But interestingly, it says it's his inheritance. It's the third person pronoun. It's in the genitive case, which all it means is that it's possessive. His being God, his inheritance. What is this a reference to? Who is this pointing to? It's not first and foremost telling the Christians, think about your inheritance as a believer. It's saying, Christian, don't you know that God counts you as his precious inheritance? That is the king of all things. When he looks out on his riches, he sees his people. This is the, what God tells his people in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 9, 29. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm, Moses says of the Lord. And then Malachi 3.17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Here he says, do you realize, Christian, that your God really loves you and he likes you and he counts you as valuable. The Christians in Ephesus particularly, most likely many of them were impoverished and they were probably impoverished and had a lower status in society because of their conversion. The main economy of Ephesus Uh, or part of the main economy, was the worship of Diana. And so many were worshiped, involved in idolatry, and they were involved in other witchcraft and occult magical practices. But in Acts 19, we see that when the believers came, they were confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And Luke's point there in Acts is that they just up in smoke went their wealth, went their estate. They gave up their wealth for Christ. Now the apostle says, may the Holy Spirit ingrain in your hearts that God counts you as his treasure. If the world thinks you're worthless, it doesn't matter. There is a dignity that each believer has that can't come from our job, that can't come from any recognition from anyone in this world, but comes from being God's own inheritance purchased by his own son. God counts the value of believers because we are united to Christ and our value is now tied to his value. And so our inheritance and being God's inheritance are two sides of the same coin. It's a display of God's great grace towards us. But it doesn't end there. He makes mention of our hope. He makes mention of being God's inheritance. But he spends the rest of the chapter thinking about power, the third blessing. And he uses four superlatives to to show us the wonder of the power that's been shown towards us. And the whole point is that in verse 19 and on, that we would see the surpassing magnitude of God's power to us. And so, in verses 19 through 23, recipients of God's grace are recipients of God's power. As I said already, the, the Christians are marginalized in a city like Ephesus. It's a big, booming city. It's the mother city of Asia Minor. It's a major port city with influence over politics, commerce, religion, and it it has an important place in the Roman Empire. But if they had any status in that city, they've given it up for Christ. 
And they often were probably like us. That in a world opposed to Christ and in a fallen world, oftentimes they probably felt small, weak, weary, and discouraged. And the Ephesians were like us and they often probably wondered, where is God's power in my life right now? So in verse 20, there, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. The Father's power is shown to us in the resurrection and the ascension. Here it is God the Father says that it's raised Christ and he has done it to demonstrate his power towards us. We await a resurrection like his. But as the Apostle Paul would, would teach us in other places that we have already tasted that resurrection power. And that if it wasn't for the same power that raised Christ from the dead, raising us from spiritual death, we would still be in darkness. Christian, I think we often underestimate the miracle of the new birth. That the same power it took to raise Christ from the grave was the same power that it took to raise us from spiritual death, to give us eyes to see. And so we have tasted a bit of the resurrection to come already. And the one who was raised is now at the right hand of God. Now this isn't to give Jesus GPS location. If we had it, we couldn't go geocache and find where he is somewhere in the heavenlies. But here, right hand is not a geographical location, but it's the place of authority. He has been given the place of authority. So where is God's power towards you today? Well, your mediator, the one who represents you before God, is at God's own right hand. And what is he doing there for you? He is praying for you. Dear Christian, see that it is the Father's design to demonstrate his power towards the recipients of grace by putting their mediator at his right hand. And there is no greater connection to power than being united to Christ because he is at the right hand of the Father. So as we feel small, weak, unimportant in the community around us at times as believers, say, why don't they listen to us? Why won't they consult with us concerning the schools or concerning these different things facing our community? Why do they ignore the voice of the church? Paul reminds us that the one whom we are united to is at the highest place of authority and he is there praying on our behalf. The Ephesians were like us and they, they at times, I'm sure, felt weak in spiritual battles. Later in the, the book, uh, in chapter six, Paul will say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness. But here in verses 21 through 22, The Father's power is shown by placing Jesus above all that is seen and what is unseen. There at the beginning, at verse 22, there's a citation to Psalm 8, 6. It says, he put all things under his feet. All things under his feet. In Psalm 8, 6, it says, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That was a reference to God and Adam at creation. It's connected to Genesis 1, 26. And what is the apostle now saying? And what do the apostles say at other places in the New Testament? That where Adam failed in exercising dominion over what is seen, Jesus has fulfilled the purpose of man. And through him, we are restored. But it goes beyond that because in verse 21, it says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In the occultic world of that era, during, 
in places like Ephesus where many practiced magical arts. Part of the magical arts were, was the, the naming of spirits and incantations and demons. And at times the Christians had to wonder, are those things going to threaten us? And if there was any concern about the, the unseen powers of darkness, the Apostle Paul says, pray that the Spirit would show you the power of Christ over all of the enemies. We don't often think about the unseen realm, typically. We don't think about how terrifying it would be to see a demon, much less an angel of God, an unfallen angel, one of God's elect angels. But just think of what is happening all around us beyond our physical eyes. That there is spiritual warfare, there is battle going on between great, mighty spiritual beings, but none of them, none of them are a match for Jesus. All that is seen and unseen, he is overall. The Ephesians were like us, and they probably at times felt weak in spiritual battle. So they looked to the exalted Christ. They also probably at times were discouraged about progress in the church. They probably at times in the mission of the church were discouraged at the success of their efforts. But what does the Father tell them? What does the Apostle Paul say? How is the Father's power shown to the church? Well, in verses 23 through 23, he brings it to us. It says that he is given as the head over the church. The Father's power is shown to the believers in that he has made Christ the head of the church. All things are under his feet, and it's for the sake of his church. Now, the concept that the church is Christ's body and he is our head is something unique that Paul brings it's affirmed by other New Testament writers, but the actual idea, the actual metaphor of being Christ's body. And this too probably also is rooted in Paul's own conversion. That on the road to Damascus, when he is stopped by Christ in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, what did Jesus tell? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. To that day, he had never seen Jesus with his eyes. But here, the resurrected, ascended Lord appears to him and says, you are persecuting me. And Paul says, how? And he makes the connection that to persecute his people is to persecute him. And this is most likely the beginning of Paul's body theology of helping us understand that those who belong to Christ are his body and that he is fulfilling his mission in the world through his body. That Christ's work of atonement is complete, but his work of rescuing sinners is still happening and it's happening through his body. And do we have the power for it? He says we do because our head is over all things. And he is governing all things for the church. But then there's the closing phrase here. It's quite a stumbling block for, for the scholars and the commentators and myself. What does it mean? Which is his body, the fullness of him. The straightforward meaning seems to say that the fullness of Christ is his body. That his body is not full without him. John Calvin explains it as so. This is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us and the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation is it for us to learn that not until we are along with him, does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete? 
Hence, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, the apostle discusses largely the metaphor of a human body. He includes under the single name of Christ, the whole church. Now, the apostle doesn't leave us with an incomplete Christ to make sure that we're not mistaken. He's making us understand that Christ said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And that those who are in union with him are inseparably in union with him. And he longs for the day in which we join him with resurrected bodies. And so to make it sure that we understand the fullness of Christ, it says he fills all in all. And Calvin goes on to say, this is added to guard against the supposition that there's any real defect that would exist in Christ if he were separated from us. His wish is to be filled and in some respects made perfect in us, arise from no want or necessity. For all that is good in ourselves or in any of the creatures is a gift of his hand. And his goodness appears the more remarkable in raising us out of nothing, that he in like manner may dwell and live in us. The body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When you're discouraged about what is happening in the church today and you're discouraged about the church and its mission in the world, do not be so. That Christ is still reigning over all things as the head of his church and for his church. He is still, by the power given to him by the Father, plucking boys and girls, men and women, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from the kingdom of darkness and placing them in his own kingdom. Every recipient of God's grace is a recipient of God's power. God the Father gives his power to Christians by giving them a powerful Christ. We Christians, we find strength in prayer by asking the Spirit to direct our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to the power of God the Father, the power of God the Father that has come to us through a powerful Christ. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Amen and hallelujah. All praise and dominion, honor and blessing and glory be to you, our great God. Forgive us when we have thought too little of your grace. Forgive us when we've been quick to forget our hope, to doubt your love for us, or to even question your power at work in us and your power at work in this world. And so we ask with the apostle that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you so that we might know you and know what you have made us into and what you're doing in us by your grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.